You're listening to episode 47 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week we talk about the writing life and discover exciting new projects. It's Friday 7th of June here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. Apologies for being a few days late with this episode. I'm Simon Jones and I'm joined by my colleague and pod host extraordinaire, Steph McKenna. Hello, Simon. Lovely, extraordinaire. Yeah. What a compliment. Well, you do have multiple podcasts. That's true. That's true. I'm racking them up. Yes. So uh, apparently it is June. Yes, I know. All of a sudden. All of a sudden, it's June. Yes, which traditionally means that May has finished. Mm-hmm. One of our busiest months of the yes. year, traditionally. Yeah, it's always a busy one, but this year in particular, it felt very busy. So we had Norfolk and Norwich Festival, which is the, the kind of annual mainstay is, that we're yeah. always leading up to with our City of Literature stuff. But this year, we also had Notwich, which was the gathering of 28... 28. 28, I've got the number literature. right. Yeah, you got it right, yes, well done. Yes, confusing. at the same time, we like doing... Yes. I mean, there was a method to doing them at the same time because we wanted our, our visitors from Cities of Literature to, to sample Norfolk and Norwich Festival and be around when the city's, you know, full of celebrations, but um, it did make things a bit busy for us. Yes, exactly. Um, and then we also had our Book of Walks launching. We did. Again, all, it's all connected. It all kind of makes sense. It is. But... There was definitely a method to all of it. it yes. looks, hopefully it looks seamless from the outside. But exactly. there, there might have been a bit of hurried, yeah. hurried activity in the background. Um, and of course, now that this has all happened, we're kind of looking forward to the next things, one of which is Noirwich. Yes. Um, so, yeah, which... so the Crime Writing Festival. Uh, at another annual event for us, which comes uh, in September, I think it's the 12th to the 15th of yep, September Yeah, that sounds year. right. Yeah, so we're pulling together the programme now, it's pretty much finalised, we're starting work on the brochure, it's all, it's lovely, I really like working on Noirage, it's such a nice, lovely programme all round, I think, um, I really enjoy promoting it, I like learning about the writers. And Yeah, it's quite fun having a, a really focused genre festival, because in terms of the writers who are there and the stuff that's being talked about, and the kind of audiences you get, it's people who really love that thing. Yes, yes, um, it's a real, I think it's a real passion project for a lot of people. And we're very lucky to work with UEA um, and with some staff at UEA who are very passionate about the genre and about the festival. So it's just a really nice, it's a really nice partnership and lots of room for crime puns, which is always fun. <laughs> trying yes. to work out whether, how far to go with the crime puns. Yeah, and, and as always with Noirwich, we always get people contacting us to tell us that we've spelled Norwich it's wrong. It's true, it's true. Just to let everyone know before they, they tweet us and whatnot, yeah, Noirwich I mean, is a deliberate pun on yes. Noir. And it I is mean, it is our fault, pun. I suppose. Yeah, but. it is our fault. <laughs> Hopefully the logo change has helped a bit. Yes. People understand that it's a, it's a deliberate pun and not just... I haven't forgotten how to spell <laughs> Our own Norwich. city. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, season passes are actually already available mm-hmm. uh, on the noirage.co.uk website. Um, and we'll be putting up the full programme and individual event tickets uh, in a few weeks' time. Yeah, a couple of weeks. So watch this space. It's all it's all beginning to happen. It's very exciting. Um, so because it's episode 47 mm. this week, that means, according to maths... <laughs> That episode 50 is coming up very it's, soon. It's pretty soon, yeah. which is very exciting. Yeah, our 50th episode of the podcast. Not quite sure how that happened. I um, have no idea. That's, yeah, that's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah, it? and because we, we essentially started doing the podcast like this um, when we relaunched as the National mm-hmm. Centre for Writing, so it's been about a year <laughs> since then as well, which also... Yeah, that was last June, wasn't Seems it? impossible. Wow. Yeah, that wow. was a busy year. Yeah. And for our 50th episode coming up, we're going to have special guest, Chris Gribble. Roll out the red carpet yeah. for our chief exec, Chris Gribble. Yeah, yes. for our own boss. Our own boss, yes. 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 So yes. Chris, who is chief exec here and 
you know, basically made the National Centre for Writing happen through mm. sheer force of will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to get him on the podcast to talk about what we've done over the last year, what's coming up, uh, where he's at now that you know, the building work at Dragon Hall is finished and we're kind of up and running and, and, and what he's looking forward to. So what we'd really like is for people to send in questions. So if you have any questions about what the centre does or what it's like to run um, a non-profit that does this kind of work mm. around literature and other art forms uh, or anything around that, then please do send them in. You can either email us, uh, info at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk or find us on Twitter or Instagram or wherever is most convenient for you. But yeah, you've got a few few weeks to send in questions. So anything that comes to mind, send it over. Let's grill him. Very <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, difficult questions. Difficult questions, please. Yes. Just to give me a smile. So this week, we have an interview with the lovely Carl Gorham about his 2017 book, The Owl at the Window, a memoir of loss and hope, uh, in which Carl writes about the loss of his wife and his attempts to rebuild his life with their six-year-old daughter. Um, prior to writing The Owl at the Window, you might have encountered his work on TV, uh, in particular, the animated series Stressed Eric, which I remember. Oh, yes, yeah. I absolutely love that. <laughs> and he also did the CITV adaptation of Meg and Mog. Megan Mogg is a classic as well. So yes. Classic. yes. So yeah, he's got a, 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 his background in comedy writing mm. and then wrote this memoir based on his own experiences. On the other end of the interview today is Hannah Garrard, who's our learning and participation program manager. And it's a really wonderful interview. Mm. Uh, editing this episode together has been, has been really lovely to listen to this and listening to Carl talking about his approach to bereavement mm. and how he rebuilt his life and how the book emerged out of his need to write about it, mm, mm. Um, but initially wasn't thinking about it becoming a book available yeah, yeah. to the public, and then kind of that journey that he went on. Um, he talks a lot about how death is a taboo, mm -hmm. um, especially you know in the UK yeah. and uh, certain parts of society, and it's not something people talk about, even no. though it's something that will at every, some point every affect single everyone. person is going to face, yeah, absolutely. It should be one of the least taboo subjects in the world, really, mm. shouldn't it? Yeah, it should should be addressed. And yeah, he talks about that really eloquently in, in very interesting ways. And um, I had to go to a funeral just a week ago mm. for a friend of mine. And uh, again, you know, it's something that I think you avoid thinking about mm. as often as you can. And then inevitably it, it comes along. And I think listening to Carl talking about it was... I found it quite helpful, actually, yeah, just absolutely. this interview. So hopefully yeah. anyone listening who is, you know, suffering from grief in some way will get something out of this. And, of course, also out of his book, if you give that a read. Yeah. Um, and what really struck me about the chat between Carl and Hannah is, is that it becomes about how you can always find hope. Yes. Even in the most awful of circumstances and where at the time it doesn't feel like you can possibly get past yeah. it, but that you do... Hope will always exist, yeah. won't it, in some form or another. Yes. And that's it's really useful to be able to hear that from someone else sometimes, I think, especially someone else who's been through it. Yeah. For them to say, like, there is, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um so yeah, let's uh, let's hand over to Hannah talking with Carl. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me today, Carl. Um, we're going to be discussing your memoir, The Owl at the Window, which was um, published in February 2017 and later won the East Anglian Book Award of the same year. Yes, um, I haven't really... It's such an interesting and curious insight into such a personal um, experience for you. 
Um, and it's always a great privilege as a reader to be kind of let into that process. Um, and you talk about um, keeping a bereavement diary, which you mentioned yeah. in the book itself. And one thing that came to my mind was the difference between writing through grief and yeah. writing about it. And I wondered, at what point did you decide to make a book out of your writing? Well, it, it took a while. Originally, uh, it was, I, I wrote the story, as it were, as a uh, TV script. And I wrote it um, as a fictionalised version, I suppose, of what actually happened to me. And I, and I wrote that TV script a couple of years after the events uh, uh, around my wife's death uh, in 2007. So I wrote a TV script in 2009. Um, and it was a fictionalised version, as I say. Um, it, it was really about a man rebuilding his life on the North Norfolk coast who'd been bereaved. Different circumstances to me. He didn't have a daughter as I have. Um, his, the parent characters were different and the people around him were different. But that sense of trying to rebuild and the difficulties he faced um, were very similar to what actually happened to me. Um, that was then actually made into a pilot in 2014. Um, but for various reasons, the pilot didn't become a series uh, and it sat on a shelf. Um, but I was still at that stage of thinking, I want to write about this. This is very, obviously, you know, why wouldn't I want to write about it? It was the biggest event of my life, losing my uh, wife um, in 2007. So I suppose the, su the subject sort of nagged away at me. Um, and I found myself writing the story in a slightly different form and the completely non-fictional, the true story, if you like. Um, and that's, that surprised me. I'd never really done anything like this before. I, I simply started writing uh, chapters that, uh, around the key events and, and, and the book sort of appeared over a period of probably about eight or nine months. Um, and I wasn't sure when it happened what it was. I wasn't sure whether it was, because it was a very personal story, whether it was um, almost the kind of thing that you put in a bottom drawer for other members of the family to read mm. in later years. Um, so I actually gave it to a friend who's in the business, but who also knew my story and said, look, is this a very, is this like a, almost a family heirloom? Or is this something that could be read by people more widely? Could it actually contribute to the bereavement discussion? Because I think also at the time when I was thinking about it, books were starting to appear, especially not many men had written about the experience of bereavement, yeah. uh, which is uh, interesting. And, and, and I felt that there were things to be said about it and themes to be explored within it. Um, so as I say, I, I gave it to this friend and they said to me, look, you know, you should really think about doing something more with this other than just regarding it as a, as a personal diary. Mm. And I imagine that you have to choose your early readers quite carefully with, with uh, a, something like this. Yes, and it didn't... It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a very natural step in many ways. I mean, it, sound, it might sound a weird thing to say, but actually I'm, I'm in many ways uh, historically quite a private person. I, I, haven't, you know, I haven't done lots of sort of personal blogging or, or, or published diaries before. It, 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 wasn't, it was only a natural step in that it was a story I felt I had to tell. The, the idea of talking about your emotions in this way, in, in quite an open way, hopefully quite an honest way, um, it's, it's not something I, 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 I looking back, I, I think even from the start, I, I've, I've necessarily felt 100% comfortable with. Um, I think the, the, the drive to tell the story was greater than any misgivings I had. But I think over the course of writing the book and the whole process of it being published, what I've, what I've 
try to come to terms with is the fact that there will always be several voices in your head to, uh, when, when you do something like this. And I, I was very conscious of that, you know, the one voice saying, um, this is, uh, you know, this is what you have to be doing and you can do this well and, and, you know, if it helps people and it opens doors and it provides insight, that's all very well and good. And there was another voice saying, help, I'm not sure about this, this is very personal, this is close to the bone, you're exposing a lot of emotion here, I'm not sure how you'll react to this. So, I th as I say, I, th I think over, over a period what I've, what I've come to terms with is the fact that those voices have been there and perhaps will always be there and that it's not, it's not either necessary or perhaps possible to resolve that, those, that, that debate between those voices. And, and it's just part of it all. It's part of that process of writing something like this. And there's a vulnerability in all writing, isn't there? Whether you're writing mm. for TV and putting it out there. Yeah, um, absolutely. And especially so with um, writing um, about grief and then sharing it with the world. Yes. And I'm interested yes. to hear how it was received by um, the people who know you and um, the sort of wider, yeah, wider world. Yeah, it, it well. was. I'm, I'm pleased to say that um, p people close to me and people involved in the story have all been incredibly supportive um, of it. And again, I, I, you know, I was, I was worried about that. That mattered to me. Um, it wasn't the kind of story that I could blithely write and then sort of just hope that people would uh, understand and receive well. Uh, I made a point of keeping people in the loop about it. It wasn't something I, I didn't uh, bury myself away and write it and then suddenly produce it the day before publication. I, I did send chapters out to people to get their reflections on it. Um, but I, as I say, I'm, 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 I'm pleased with their reaction in terms of um, the fact that they, they've, they've seen what I've tried to do with it, which is to be very honest, and, uh, and they haven't, you know, I, I really haven't had any ad adverse comments at all from them. Um, so that's, that's been very pleasing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, The Owl at the Window is such a beautiful testament to, to Vicky, your wife, and to your marriage as well. Um, and you're very candid about um, your, your own feelings and reactions to things. Sometimes it might feel irrational, you mm. talk about it some, at some stages. Um, but you're also very funny as well. And that's what is something that really stood out for me, is that, um, that humour doesn't have to be lost. And it no. clearly has a really important role in that. I wondered if you could just talk yes. a bit about... Well, I think, I think there is always uh, humour um, in everything. And, and in, in a way, it almost becomes uh, a more necessary part of the discussion around something as, as, as serious as um, bereavement. Because I think you, when you're bereaved, you, you're in such a dark place. I think you almost become hyper aware of the possibilities for humour. You almost try and grab hold of those moments because they almost lift you up. Um, uh, you know, and I'm a, I, I know, you know, I'm a comedy writer by, um, historically a comedy writer. So, so I notice those things perhaps more than other people. So, uh, you know, they're likely to find their way into the, to the, to the book anyway. So, so I think, yeah, um, you know, and, and I, yeah, I, I'm in a way slightly surprised that I, having said all that, that I still found those moments that they, that they still kind of punch through, um, but it, 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 bereavement, in my experience, is, is an incredibly complicated thing, um, and it does contain all these elements. It, it, it contains, as I said, all the all, all the dark moments. But but I I was slightly surprised thinking back and reflecting on it that there were as many 
humorous and 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 and, and I say light moments. Um, but it's 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 the biggest biggest taboo. You know, death is the biggest taboo. So, in one sense, one shouldn't be surprised. And you know, you you have those those the more obvious areas, I suppose, such as the um, you know the fact that people because it's such a big taboo, people just don't know how to approach it. Everyone's so worried about you know saying or doing the wrong thing around it. That's a, that's a classic recipe for for comedy. Um, you know, because it's 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 the comedy of social embarrassment. You know. And again, I hope I've, I've, I've captured some of that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's difficult because, again, it's something that came through and I'm pleased about that. But I tried to, when I was writing the book, I tried not to be prescriptive about what, what came out of, of, of that writing process. What, what, my aim was to try and write the story as honestly and faithfully as I could. And if... Um, a comic, I arrived at a comic moment, I tried to make that comic. If it was a, a very emotional moment, I tried to make it emotional. I didn't get, get hung up on, on what kind of story it was, because it, it, in essence it was a story which contained all the emotions. Um, so I, it, it, sounds, it sounds an odd thing to say, I, I tried not to think about how I was writing it, but in a way I didn't, uh, because I thought that might inhibit me as well. Because um, I, I, I was only too aware that it was a difficult enough story anyway to to write, I just tried not to edit myself or to, uh, in a way to overthink it, you know, to, to try and try and just be loyal to it and say, you know, uh, if this happened and it's part of the story and it was funny, then let it be funny. And equally with, with the darker bits, the more emotional bits. Mm. There's one chapter which particularly stands out for a lot of readers and it's, it's going to have a life of its own potentially after the book, which is towards the end called Cardboard Mummy, yes. which is about your, your, your daughter's response and um, that she, she made a kind of an effigy of, of Vicky, yes. potentially, with, um, out of boxes yes. and lived in your house. And that's, that's, right. um, that's, that was, it was, it was a really touching moment for me. Um, and I, both, I wanted to both kind of laugh and weep a little bit at the same well, time. Well, again, that, that, that's a case in point where, where a lot of emotion came to all, or, or, a lot of different emotions were all sort of tied, tied together in that because it was a very, uh, very sort of moving, very sort of symbolic moment. Um, as you say, uh, this, this occurred a few months after Vicky died and I had been worried in the wake of her death about, about my daughter because she was only six at the time and, and she hadn't expressed a lot of emotion um, obviously, a thing like your mother's death is such a huge event. Um, it, 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 it seemed to be a very difficult thing to verbalise. And as her dad, I was very worried. I, I thought, is she having enough opportunity to express the, the emotion? Am I, am, I, am I providing her with the tools, so to speak? But this, the Cardboard Mummy episode happened very naturally. You know, there were, there were literally some cardboard boxes hanging around in the hall. And one day she said, I, I, literally the words, I want to make mummy. And, um, you know, this, this, this model of, of mum was built and became part of our lives. It, it, it started off as a, as a kind of art, a very, rather lovely art project involving dad. And, and, then, and then Cardboard Mummy was taken around wherever we went and appeared at mealtimes and was in her bedroom at night when um, uh, stories were being read. Uh, and, and from the moment Cardboard Mummy appeared, there, was, there were elements of, of, you know, you looked at Cardboard Mummy and thought, wow, this is very powerful, this is very moving. But also, you know, Cardboard Mummy was quite a crude uh, doll and looked kind of a bizarre and 
you know, the, had a mouth carved out with a bread knife that was all wonky and had a, a strange. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, it did. It looked like there was an element of Hitchcock about right. it, you know. And 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 after a while, Remy wanted to take Cardboard Mummy out to meet her friends, and we started getting slightly odd situations where Cardboard Mummy was 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 in the front of the car and being driven around town and. We were parking in Budgeon's car park and Carvel we were sort of staring out the front window. So, so again, a different sort of uh, um, elements in there, um, you know, something moving, something slightly weird, something odd, something funny. And, and obviously people's reactions because Carvel Mummy was, people knew about Carvel Mummy, but when they met Carvel Mummy for the first time, you know, I, I know that people maybe thought, wow, this is, this is, this is, this is weird and powerful stuff. Um, but but it, it, in the end, really lovely because Cardboard Mummy um, uh, was eventually taken to school and used in a show and tell and enabled um, Romy to actually talk about her mum's illness and her death in a way that she hadn't been able to talk about it um, before. So Cardboard Mummy really provided a wonderful uh, outlet uh, and, and means of expression. Um, and as you say, it, a, a classic case of one of those elements in the bereavement story that, that was a lot of different things, that was um, moving and powerful and, and in a way sad and emotional, but also kind of slightly off the wall and funny at the same time. Mm. And there's something really important about writing about a traumatic experience in terms of sense making of your own story of your life as well um, and I wondered if you could sort of comment on the usefulness of writing through um, through a distressing time mm. or a traumatic experience from your past one's past or something yes um, well for a lot of people sort of use that word cathartic was it a cathartic experience writing writing the book and I would say um, it was, uh, there wasn't a single cathartic moment. I, it wasn't as if I, I wrote it and then felt at the end of it, there was, I, I was setting something aside or I had, I had taken a big leap forward. I think, um, I think bereavement in particular is very complicated. Uh, and, you know, that phrase of bereavement is, is a lifetime experience. It, it, it really is, I think. So your grief goes on, bereavement goes on beyond the writing of a book about it. But I think it's, it felt like an important stage. Uh, it felt like a lot of emotion was released, and I believe that, that that was a good thing and a necessary thing at the time of writing the book. So I think that for me, um, it was the book. The book is part of my bereavement story and uh, an important part. But but I don't think I don't think it's a sort of conclusive part. I don't think certainly certainly my experience when I write. I think it's. It's necessary at the time, and particularly in this case, but um, it's just a part of the experience of life. It's not, in a way, it's not a sort of answer, if that, if that makes sense. It doesn't end when the book closes. No, no, it yeah. did, no, and of course it, it, it doesn't, it never, you know, I, I, but coming to terms with that, the fact that bereavement doesn't end is, is part of the battle of bereavement, because bereavement lasts a lifetime, but you have to find a place to put it, and I think, um, writing the book was was an, a, another important help in that. I can really understand that as having 
just having something tangible that you can hold yes, and say, and that, this and, is where it lives know, for that, the moment. That, that, sense, that physical thing was really important to me yeah. um, in terms of writing it um, because, uh, and, and literally, and literally the, the, the actually physical appearance of the book, because I, I really had a conscious sense when I wrote it that um, uh, experience of Vicky's cancer, because she'd been ill for a long time, she, she was ill for nine years um, from when she was diagnosed to when she died and there were periods in it when she was wet, in quotes well and and she wasn't being treated and all that kind of stuff and we kind of cracked on with life but it, 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 it you, ha you know that sense of living with cancer or living with the threat of it returning um, was always there and and looking back after she died I think I felt a strong sense that Cancer can be a very negative experience. It can be a very destructive experience. You, you, you feel like it's destroyed a lot. And I felt a big urge to try and remake that, uh, that sense of, of, of uh, cancer being destructive in some way. And, and how that came out was literally, I almost wanted, I, I wanted to build something. I wanted to make something. And I wanted it to be physical. I really did. It was very important to me that the book was something I could put my hand on. Mm. Um, and, and it was so, it, then I felt I could walk away from the experience of writing a book, but I could always go back to it and I could touch it and it would be something. And that, and, and, and that was very, very uh, important. That was a key drive in doing it because then I would have felt that I hadn't, I hadn't won over the experience of cancer, but that I'd, I'd sort of fought it in somehow. I, I'd counteracted it, if that makes sense at all. Yeah. Uh, I'd made it into something else. I'd made all of that negativity. Now, in a very small way, I'd, I'd hasten to add, I mean, it's, you know, writing a book after something like that is, is what it is. It's writing a book. It's, it's, not an, it's, not, you know, it's not an antidote to it at all. What happened still happened, and you still live with that, and I still live with that years on. But it was something. And having something, because uh, and, and, especially in the, in the immediate aftermath, uh, aftermath of bereavement, it, it, you do feel a great sense of you're trying to cling on to something. Mm. And, and I keep coming back to this physical thing, but it felt important. Mm. Well, the book has a very hopeful message at the end as well. And it's kind of driving towards that. Um, and I wonder whether you feel that writers who are publishing about writing about grief and personal stories have a sense of duty to readers to show some kind of life after grief mm. and some hopefulness. Um, okay, there's a kind of community of readers yes. and writers no, out there. No, absolutely. No, I think it's, uh, I, it, it's a difficult one. I, I, it's, it's a difficult to say, to, to use the word duty. Uh, I know what you mean, but I, 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 think, I think in a way the duty, the duty is to tell it like, like it is in terms of your experience of it. Authenticity I, of yeah, it. authenticity, absolutely. I think that's, that, that's what it is. And Again, I think because it's a mixture of emotions, you, you, you can't leave out hope because there's no doubt about it. You know, I've learnt, you know, at the time of losing, the initial months and years of bereavement are very tough. And people often say, oh, I don't know how you get through it. And the answer is, you do. And, and that is the biggest single, I think, uh, element of hope in it, is that human beings are incredibly resilient creatures. And I think that is the thing that I would sort of point to in terms of w wanting to pass something on. You, you can remake your life and you can do that without losing a sense of the person who's gone. You can still 
carry that with you and yet you can live a very full and productive life. And it's a wonder to me, even having gone through the experience, and that's the thing I think I would want to pass on, is that you only you realise how far you've come when you look back and you think, wow, I remember the person that was around six months after it, six months after it happened. And they were, I mean, I, I remember really for the whole first year, you live in a strange kind of almost zombie-like, I mean, you function, but you don't quite know how. It's like a big in a mist. Uh, but you move on from that and, and it's always there, but you find a place to put it. I come back to that thing that I said before, you, you find a place to put it. And that's for me, the really powerful message is, is, is how human beings can recover and how they can move on. And that's the, that's the optimism, I think. And yes, I, I would agree with you there. That's the authenticity, as far as, far as I've found it, in, in living that experience. That's what I would want to pass on and, and say to people. You know, and actually, the, the gratifying thing about having written the book is that I've had a terrific response in terms of people reading it and coming to me and saying, um, I lost someone, uh, and it's been an encouragement to me, or you know, that chimes with my experience. Uh, it's, it has definitely connected with a lot of people. And I guess, yeah, that's you, part of your journey as well, of connecting with, with your readers too, and having something back in the uh, Yeah, in totally, afterwards. totally. And, and, and that's been quite overwhelming at times. To, you know, when people, people say things, a couple of people said, oh, like, that's, I feel your books give me a voice, because a bereavement is a very isolating experience. And actually being able to provide a forum in which people can express themselves and, and writing a book can, can be that forum in a way. If you can read about someone else going through similar things and uh, you can then, uh, you, can, you, can, you can literally feel I'm not alone. And that's such an important thing because you do, that's, that's the problem is you do feel alone. You, you, you look around and you feel cut off because you've lost the person who's closest to you. And that's, that's, that's really hard. And it's a paradoxical state, grief, because it's a universal experience for humankind. At some point in our lives, we will likely experience it, but then it's so deeply isolating, as you say, and, Absolutely. and personal Absolutely. too. And that's, and that's why I think it's important that people keep writing about bereavement, because it is, it's the single thing that we know is going to happen to all of us. You know, that, that's the absolute cast-iron certainty, as you say, and it, and it connects us. And, and the more we can understand it, and I think the more we can empathise with other people who are going through it and the more we can then you know the more we're, we're equipped uh, before maybe we go through it ourselves but certainly when we see other people going through it then we'll be we'll understand what's going on in their heads and that that will enable us to be better with them because and I know I mean I'm not perfect even now I and mean, I've gone through the experience and sometimes I find it difficult to know how to approach people who have been bereaved even with with all the all the suppose the things I've learned it's incredibly difficult to know what to do and to say. You know, it's hard, but if we keep educating ourselves about it and we keep understanding, then we'll, we will get better at it. And, yeah, it's something that um, we're not very good at talking about generally and people often shy away from the, the, the subject. It's a bit scary, it's a and, bit too much. And, and writing also, has a... Absolutely, and I think especially with... There's an English tradition. I mean, e even talking to c uh, friends with Celtic backgrounds, there, uh, there's there's very different traditions. There, I say there's an ease with it. There's 
there's certainly an openness that perhaps there's, a, there's an uptight English, especially middle-class tradition. Yeah, quite right. Which, yeah. And I tend to come from that, that world and, and that, therefore I feel that acutely that, that uh, people like myself aren't necessarily equipped to, to approach other people who are bereaved or know what to do in, in bereavement situations. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, and the stigma was the sort of um, word that came to mind as well, yes. particularly about men talking about their experiences. Yes, and you, absolutely. You mentioned Ab about that as well. Ab no, absolutely. I, I, and I think for, for a long time, men haven't been able to... It's the thing about men not being able to voice their emotions openly and and not, not, not being able to access uh, necessarily what the, the emotions or be able to articulate the emotions they're feeling. Um, yes, that, 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 that needs to get better. And, and, and again, you know, we're very open as a society about many things, but this is a, this is an, I think this is an area of weakness uh, when, it, when we're talking about bereavement, especially men and bereavement. Um, you know, we, we could do a lot better with that, I think. I think for that reason alone, The Owl at the Window feels like a really important book at, at oh, well, this thank time. You. Thank yeah. you. I mean, uh, you, you, you do say... In writing it, I hope that it genuinely hope that it could be useful to people, a useful tool to people, and and people could could find something in it for them, uh, them themselves. Um, and it, it's very gratifying when people do respond to it positively and they, they say those sorts of things. So, so it, it helps. It helps. It makes makes it feel that it was it was worthwhile. It, and it was hard to write. It was genuinely hard to write at times. And and when you hear the, the positive responses that. That helps with all that. You do think, well, you know, it, it was all worthwhile. And what are you writing now, Carl? What's your uh, next project? Uh, well, I'm writing another memoir um, because rather uh, ironically, um, I've had my own brush with cancer in the last 18 months, from which I'm thankfully fully recovered. But I, I again, feel impelled to write about that experience. Um, and I'm writing a book about that at the moment. In fact, I've just finished the first draft and it's, it's about that. It's a, it, again to come back to um, uh, the subject of cancer. It is something that affects so many people, and it is another taboo. You know, I say death and cancer pr pretty equal in terms of being taboo subjects. People don't talk about it enough. People don't know how to approach people with cancer. And I, I would hope that this new book um, gives some insight into the mind of someone who's going through cancer treatment. Obviously, with Vicky, I was very much the care chief carer and I was looking at it from outside but I was uh, interested that when I was going through treatment there was a lot I thought then that looking back I hadn't really understood about what she must have felt like what the whole business feels like of being the person who's told they have cancer who then has to battle through radiotherapy chemotherapy go through the whole hospital process and indeed afterwards uh, and a, uh, a key part of the new book is about the moment that you're out of the system, you're released, you're told basically you're well, you are at this moment cancer-free, go and live your life. It's that moment where you're in a sense left to your own devices, ha what happens to you mentally? Because there are, I think, um, things that follow on from that where it's, it's, you have a period of readjustment after your, your treatment where you are seeing the world in a different way, where you are basically told uh, you go back to being a normal person, but you're not a normal person because you've just had cancer and your aspirations, where you look at the world is different. And I used to think, for instance, that um, 
you know, when they, you read stories about, I've, I've come out of cancer treatment, I'm now doing a bungee jump, I'm right. cycling around yeah. the world, I'm chasing leopards in Africa. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to think, well, hang on, you've just had cancer. It's a, bit, it's a bit rash, isn't it? But I can totally understand it now because when I came back after treatment into, well, rejoined my life as it was, you, you do go through a whole process of where you question everything. You do have a strange kind of... Um, you are very adrenalised because in, in its own way, the cancer treatment is a kind of white-knuckle ride. It's an extreme. And it sounds kind of twisted to say this, but it's in its, its own uh, bleak way. It's a kind of high. You're very much pushed to the edge. It's very extreme treatment. Um, I had 30 sessions of radiotherapy and seven sessions of chemotherapy at the same time. It was a lot of stuff. Gosh, yeah. uh, they absolutely bombarded me, uh, uh, which in retrospect I'm very pleased about because it was effective. But it takes you to, you have to draw on a lot of resources just to get through it. And afterwards, you're sort of then told, oh, you're fine now, go and put the bins out. Um, you know, Carry do that bit. Yes, yeah. yeah, do that. Go and do the shopping in Budgeons. And there's a sort of, mismatch there and part of you is slightly feeling no I, I want to I want to I want to rip it all up I want to do something different I want to go mad I want to so there's there's a great sort of energy there a kind of post-cancer energy mm. uh, and I'm intrigued by that I'm intrigued and and that can send you into that can be positive um, that can be exciting and productive but it can also put you in quite dark places and I think I experienced a bit of both um, because you can also experience frustration and anger. You can be saying um, to yourself, this is not enough. Why am I, why am I, this is too mundane. Um, I feel trapped by all the things, by just rejoining my life, I feel trapped by it all. And, and I can see the way, and people do talk about things like uh, post-cancer, they talk about um, people, uh, you know, possible tendencies towards things like depression, having experienced all that and I can again I can see why and I don't think that's the, the mental health side of it if you like right. is not something that's talked about no, enough it's not. or it's not catered for yeah. um, you are once you're out in the medical and the medical thing was in my case I have nothing but praise for my medical team I, I had fantastic support I had treatment in Norfolk and it was absolute top you know hats off to the NHS they are fantastic they do it really well but once you're out the system which you are when you know, rightly when you're in quotes better um, there are other things that come up and, that, creep in. and, and there yeah. isn't really I don't think a good structure for dealing with those mm. and that's 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 a part of what I'm writing about and I think that's that's something that hasn't been talked about a lot. Yeah. Well, I'd like to say I'm looking forward to reading your, mem your, your next memoir, you. which I am. Um, and I'm fascinated to see yes, how, you, how you can it. It's also got it's it's some funny bits in. Good. I look forward to those as well. Mental health. And, yes, it's, it, it, it's, it, hopefully it's written in the same way as the first book, as in I draw in all kind of different, different strands yeah. to it. So it's the bizarre and the bleakly humorous, if you like, as well as the, the harder hitting aspects of it yeah. that I explore. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today and for all of your time as That's well. Right. Um, Delighted. Thanks for listening and thanks to Carl for being on the pod. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at Steph X McKenna or Simon at Tarnamus. 
You can follow National Centre for Writing on our social accounts. We're at Writer Centre on Twitter and Instagram, and we're at the National Centre for Writing on Facebook. And for those who are intrigued by the Noirage Crime Writing Festival, visit the website noirage.co.uk, find us on Twitter at NoirageFest, and on Instagram at Noirage. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast. And if you know someone who might like to listen to us, do let them know. Don't forget, send in your questions for the 50th episode as well. If you've always wanted to ask Chris Gribble something, now is your chance. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.